Please be upstanding for Senator Flavius Justice, Senator of Rome. Please be upstanding. Some years ago, a popular Jewish teacher and healer was put to death by crucifixion on the orders of the prefect governor of the Roman province of Judea, Pontius Pilate. This man, Yeshua bar Yosef, commonly known by his Greek name, Jesus, was alleged to have been fomenting rebellion and to have declared himself king of the Jews. It seems clear that the main instigators of this charge were the local Jewish authorities, which operate under the supervision of the prefect and, it must be said, have been cooperative in controlling this difficult corner of the Roman Empire. Almost immediately after this Jesus was executed, within a few days in fact, it became clear that his body had disappeared from the tomb in which it had been laid. His followers were claiming that he had risen from the dead. Implausible as the story may seem, it has gained a great deal of support with many followers of the way, as they themselves call it, dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. Converts have been made among the extensive Jewish communities around the Great Sea and also in non-Jewish communities. The followers claim that this Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah, the prophesied divine King of the Jews and of the whole world. In Greek, the title translates as Christ, so the followers have become known as Christians. It is clear that this new movement is a growing influence and therefore its central claim that Jesus rose from the dead after being executed on a cross must be investigated to determine whether or not it is true. We have witnesses to be cross-examined in order to ascertain this truth. Please call the high priest Please state your name. I'm Yehosef Bar Kayafa, that is Joseph Caiaphas. And your official title is? I'm the High Priest of the Temple of Israel. Is this a title that you inherited or were you elected by the people? I was appointed by Valerius Gratus, who was Roman governor before Pontius Pilate. <laughs> but in truth, I was destined to take on the burden of guiding my people. My family have been a leading, ruling Jewish family for many generations. We always understood the reality of the situation with the Roman occupation of the land of Israel, that is, Judea and Galilee. We have to cooperate with the Romans or perish. And what was the basis for the charge against the prisoner? The Nazarene had been heard making idle threats against the temple. This was the basis of the charge about which we made our inquiry. Threats? What, what kind of threats? Oh, he was reported as saying that he would tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. 
And you took these threats seriously? No, of course not in themselves, but it was clear that this man could whip up a mob to follow him. We'd only just avoided a riot when he arrived in Jerusalem a few days before. You have to understand the re responsibility we bear as the leaders of the people of Israel. Jesus and his popularity were a threat to the authority of the proper government of the people, and a threat to us is a threat to the Romans and to the Roman peace. We must not antagonize the Romans. Something had to be done. I mean, seriously, how could the Messiah have come from the peasants in Galilee? All the good families are in Jerusalem. We are the royalty, not some chippy bumpkin from the back of beyond. When did anything good come out of Nazareth? But why was the trial conducted at night? We needed to prepare a case to be presented to the great Sanhedrin. The trial had to be <coughs> conducted quickly, or the situation could have spiralled out of control very rapidly. But we had very little time from when Judas Iscariot came to us and offered to help us to find and arrest Jesus. Therefore, we made an arrangement with Pilate. Pilate was a useful idiot, typical Roman thug. Usually, he could be relied upon to come down hard on any dissent. This time, he seemed to be reluctant to do what we wanted. So we impressed on him that if he let this man go, he was no friend of Caesar. He's always touchy about that sort of remarks, you see. His wife is a close relative of Tiberius, and he gets very scared when the emperor is mentioned. Now, but could you not have dealt with this um, under your own laws? No. For a start, we could not execute a capital punishment on this type of charge. That right was reserved to the Roman authorities. A stoning would not do. It would have been an invitation to riot. It had to be dealt with by the Romans, or the situation could have descended into chaos. Also, we'd already arranged the meeting with Pilate. It would hardly have done to ask him to be available to pass a capital sentence early in the morning, but then to carry it out ourselves. But from the records of the trial, it appears that things did not go as expected. It is true that the witnesses we had originally arranged did not turn out to be as um, accurate as we would have liked. Um, that is, they needed to be uh, to achieve a reliable conviction. However, the accused condemned himself out of his own mouth. In what way? In a Jewish court of law, there is a form of words that forces a Jewish witness to answer truthfully. This <coughs> Jesus claimed to be a devout Jew, and he knew the meaning of this form of words. I adjure you, in the name of the living God. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? To lie would be to insult Adonai, to condemn himself in the face of God himself. Ah, so it was a trap. It was a way of forcing Jesus to answer. And what did he answer? He answered, it is as you say. It was a clear blasphemy. And it was a claim to be the king of the Jewish people, a direct challenge to the rule of the Romans. At last, we had something substantial to take to Pilate. 
Did you not um, consider the possibility that he was telling the truth? Well, of course not. No, no. So you delivered the prisoner to Pilate on a charge that he was threatening a rebellion. Um, however, Pilate was reluctant to convict him. Well, what changed the governor's mind? Pilate attempted to avoid the issue by offering an amnesty. The people were allowed to choose either Jesus or another prisoner for release. It was very clear what the crowd wanted. A bloodthirsty crowd can be remarkably persuasive. Pilate made a ridiculous gesture of publicly washing his hands of his guilt, but he still handed him over. And what do you make of the disappearance of the body on Sunday morning? We were afraid that something like this would happen, so we set a guard over the tomb. Nevertheless, we are convinced that his followers stole the body. Obviously, we didn't know where it was, or would, <laughs> we would have just produced it to stop all these crazy stories. All right. Uh, thank you, High Priest. Will you please take your seat? Thank you. And now, um, I'd like to call Pontius Pilate. Could you please state your name? I am Pontius Pilate, Roman Prefect Governor of the Province of Judea. I was appointed by the Emperor Tiberius Claudius Nero. And when did you first interview the prisoner, Jesus of Nazareth? The interview had been arranged in advance at the request of Caiaphas and Annas, his father-in-law. I had agreed to their request to come out of the Antonine Fortress to conduct the interrogation. It was the day of the Passover festival. The whole city was full of overexcited Jews. And Caiaphas strongly advised that we should get the business with this Jesus character out of the way as fast as possible. We didn't want a riot, no. <laughs> that would have been a little messy. And, and how did the interview proceed? Well, I recall that he was a most unusual prisoner. His demure, well, his demure was perfectly calm. He said very little. Indeed, for a peasant, well, he was very dignified, quite regal, you might say. Perhaps that is why Caiaphas had been so anxious to get rid of him. The Jewish rulers would not come inside the Antonines, so I came out to the anteroom while they waited outside. There was something to do with their Passover festival. Apparently, any contact with Romans would have left them ritually <laughs> defiled. <laughs> Ridiculous nonsense, of course, but I went along with it. Jesus was brought in by my guard. So, um, did you conduct a legal procedure? I followed the proper protocol for a trial under Roman law. I needed an accusatio, a charge. So I went out to them and demanded they give one to me. Well, apart from some stuff about him being an evildoer, they didn't have anything. So I told them to try him themselves. Finally, one of them said he was claiming to be the Jewish Messiah. Uh, that's Christ in Greek. 
Now, this Messiah has been prophesied in their scriptures for thousands of years. They're all expecting an all-conquering heroic leader who will sweep away all the enemies of the Israelites and found a kingdom that will never fade away. <laughs> uh, I tell you, this Jesus, he didn't look much like an all-conquering hero. For a start, where was his army? <laughs> Whatever. I moved on to the interrogatio, the questioning. I merely asked him, are you a king? He actually had the brass neck to ask me, me, if I had been put up to ask that question. I pressed him again, and he said, you decide. My kingdom is not the kingdom of this world. I am in this world to bear witness to the truth. If you hear me, you hear the truth. I remember saying, what is truth? But guess what? He didn't answer. Did you consider that the prisoner was in some way a danger to the authority of Rome? <laughs> well, frankly, I could not find much to substantiate a capital charge, so I had him flogged. I then took him back out to Caiaphas and the Jewish authorities. He was already a pretty pathetic sight. The guards had dressed him up in a purple uh, robe and they'd put a, a crown of thorns on his head. I told Caiaphas and his cronies that I could find no fault in him. He wouldn't have caused any trouble after being looked after by one of our scourges, but they insisted, even suggesting that it wouldn't go down well with the emperor if I didn't deal with him. <laughs> well, they had a point, actually. There's enough trouble in this remote hole without provoking the mob again. Still, Jesus didn't say anything. I tried to remind him that I had the power to have him crucified, but he told me, <coughs> me the prefect of the Roman Empire, that I have no authority if heaven hadn't given it to me. Well, why did you have the, um, what, uh, why was your final I have decision? To maintain why was your final decision to have him crucified? The Pax Romana. It sometimes requires difficult decisions. It's better to keep the peace, even at the expense of a little injustice. So I went along with the, the priests for a quiet Passover. No riots! I ordered his execution, but I wrote a sign to be put above the cross myself. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They didn't like that. I had to make it clear that any king of this rabble is subject to Roman authority. Caiaphas didn't like that. We have no king but Caesar, he said. Well... So much for their God. I just told them, what I have written, I have written. Upstart Jews, trying to tell Rome what to do. Thank you, Pilate. The uh, net next witness is uh, a Roman centurion. Do we have a Roman centurion? Centurion, please state your uh, full name. Salve, Invictus, Las Victus, Elotus, Ganaia Celos Celos Serum. 
Please, they speak in Greek, but uh, so the court can understand. I'm sorry, my uh, Greek is not perfect. Um, greetings, Judge and Lictus. I am Gnaeus Tilius Celius, centurion of the Iron Second Legion. And you were on duty when the Galilean, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, was executed by crucifixion? I was, sir, yes. Um, I remember the charge board, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The governor actually wrote it himself. Um, that never happened before or since. He must have really gotten under Pilate's skin. Please continue. Thank you. Um, he was bad. He was bad already when he came to us. Um, we Romans are good at punishment. We know how to take someone with an inch of their death with a whip. Half the skin of his back was taken off. And the boys at the headquarters have beaten him up too. Stuck a crown on his head made of thorns. These thorns were as long as your finger, sharp as a dagger. They make very good security fencing, you know, actually. Oh, yes, thank you, thank you. Uh, can we stick to the relevant information, please? Um, what condition was the prisoner in when you actually took custody of him? Um, he had already collapsed um, on his way to Crucifixion Hill. Um, Skull Hill, so it's also known. It's a bad place. Some bloke standing at the side of the road had been forced to help him carry the crossbar. And you were in charge of the crucifixion itself. You followed normal procedure? I did, sir, yes. Um, the bosses wanted it over and done with fast... As, so, sorry, my Greek again. Done with fast as well as used... So we used nails on him. It's much quicker because the victim loses more blood and he can't pull himself up, so he suffocates sooner. After floggings and beatings, he wasn't going to last very long, nailed up on the bar. How long did he take to die? About six hours. Um, we started at nine o'clock in the morning, and dead about three o'clock in the afternoon, sir. That was quick. Are you sure he was dead? Of course he was dead. I know my job. I'm a soldier. To make sure, I stuck my spear in his side, straight through his heart. Blood, water, everywhere. He didn't move a muscle. He was definitely dead, sir. Yes, and what then happened to the body? A Jew called Joseph, along with some other Jewish guy, I don't know the name of, um, brought a permit from Pilate himself and took it away for burial. Um, a handful of the women followed them as well. <coughs> Can I just say, he was different to any other prisoner I ever saw. He looked straight at me, as if to say that he forgive me for what I was doing to him. When he died, it got very dark, you know, clouds and all that. It was like everything was breaking up around that hill. Never seen anything like it before, sir. Thank you, Centurion. Please take your seat. I call the, uh, the next witness, this um, Joseph that we've just heard about. Please take the stand. Please state your name. I am Joseph of Haramathaim in Ephraim, and a member of the Jewish High Council, the Great Sanhedrin. And were you a follower of this Jesus? I am a devout Jew, and I have been awaiting the coming of the kingdom of God. When I heard Jesus teach, I heard something that I have never heard before in a teacher of the law authority 
Jesus was a very great teacher, and he was also a healer. In so many ways, he seemed to be the promised king of our people. His was not a message of revolution, of violent overthrow of the Romans. No, he said that the people, each and every one of us, had to turn away from our old ways and learn to live the law as it should be in our hearts. So yes, I thought he was the Messiah. You can imagine my shock when I heard that he'd been arrested. Uh, what was your part in the trial of Jesus? I was present in the morning. I'm a member of the council. But I want to make it very clear that I never consented to that conviction. The whole trial was a travesty. Jewish legal rules were broken. It's against the law to hold a capital trial at night. And the witnesses were unreliable, even liars. Jesus should have been released there and then. But Caiaphas had his own agenda, the political agenda. In my view, he wanted a rival out of the way. We must understand what Jesus was convicted of and why. What did he really do? What did he really say? What did he really claim? He never claimed. He never claimed that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it. When he said this temple, he was speaking of his own body. So ask yourself, who stood to gain from getting Jesus out of the way? And then look to the motives of those involved. My one great regret was that I was powerless to stop it. How did they get a conviction? Well, they couldn't make the charges stick. The first ones they brought against him. As I've said, the witnesses contradicted one another. <coughs> the curious thing is that Jesus gave them their reason from his own mouth. Caiaphas was getting increasingly impatient. So he asked him directly, as he said, in the name of the living God, he said, was he the Messiah, the son of the living God? Well, when he asked like that, any Jew is forced to answer, and answer truthfully, for his soul depends on it. Caiaphas was setting him a trap. Either Jesus had to deny everything that he'd said before, or he had to make his claim to be the Messiah. Be clear, Jesus was more truthful than any man who ever lived. So he said, yes, it is as you say. And he warned everyone that one day they would see him return in power. After Jesus was dead, you buried him in your own tomb. Why was that? Well, you will have gathered that I did not approve of Jesus' treatment. I was concerned that even if he'd been disgracefully treated when he was alive, he should be honorably treated in his death. But wasn't this a great risk to yourself? Perhaps. But Caiaphas must have thought that he could nip the trouble in the bud by cutting off the head. I think the risk to me was relatively small. It was important to honor Jesus. 
Well, how did you get permission to, um, to take his body? Well, I have a little influence. I'm a wealthy man, and I've made some influential friends here in Jerusalem. So I used some of that influence to ask Pilate for Jesus' body after he died. And Pilate graciously agreed. I think it gave him another chance to, to rub Caiaphas's nose in it. Where did you bury him? I'd purchased a tomb, planning ahead for my own use one day, and I decided to use this for Jesus. I found out my friend Nicodemus felt much the same way about Jesus. He told me that he'd spoken to Jesus in person one night many years ago, and that meeting had changed his life. Born again, he called it. Neither of us could be open about our belief in Jesus, but we agreed this was a time to make a stand, albeit a small one. So the Romans took his body down for us. I'd already bought a shroud. And Nicodemus and I carried the body to the tomb. It was quite nearby. And we hastily wrapped it. And we rolled the stone in front of the entrance. We had no time. We had no time to do anything more. All the proper offices the sun was about to set and the Sabbath was starting. I remember that some of the women were there. They would come back on the, on the first night after the Sabbath, Sabbath to finish cleaning the body. Mm. Joseph, thank you for your evidence. Would please uh, take your seat. The uh, next witness is uh, a woman, Mary, Mary Magdalene. My priest, please be seated. Thank you, Centurion. Please be seated. <clears throat> I'm sorry about that. Um, please state your name. Uh, uh, sir, I am, um, I am uh, Miriam. That is, uh, um, please speak up. Look, we're not going to eat you. We're friendly here. Speak clearly and loudly so we can all hear. I am Miriam. That is Mary from Magdala in Galilee. I am unmarried. And uh, would you tell us, please, what happened? Just start on the Friday. Yes. On Friday, we three, that's Mary, James's mother, Salome, and myself, tried to be as near to Jesus as we could through the day. We didn't want him to die alone, and there was his mother to care for as well. And Salome's son, John, was there too. Okay, and listen clearly, what, what, what happened after Jesus was dead? Well, we thought he'd just hang there until the Romans cut him down. But a man called Joseph, an important man, came along with a permit from the governor to take the body away. Did you know this, Joseph? No, I found out he was from a place called Arimathea, but I didn't know, don't know where that is, I'm afraid. He had a friend with him called Nicodemus. Yes, and uh, what time was it that the body was taken down? Uh, it was getting late. You see, Joseph and his friend Nicodemus didn't have any time to clean his body up properly on the Friday because the Sabbath was coming up. Both of them are very respectable men, you see, and... They would never have broken the Sabbath laws if they could help it. They are Pharisees, but they knew Jesus well, and they respected him. I think, secretly, they believed in him. Good, you're doing very well. Now, now how did you help? Um, well, we followed them to the tomb and tried to help as we could. Uh, we couldn't carry the body, of course, but apart from being a heavy weight for three women to carry, it wouldn't have been decent, you know, even though he was dead. <coughs> and, um, yeah, it took, the two of them, uh, took two of them to carry him there. It was 
Joseph's family grave that he had purchased for himself to be buried in one day um, in case he died in Jerusalem. And um, we couldn't clean the body and anoint it on Friday as the sun was going down and we had to get back to the house. We agreed that we would bring the spices and oils back as soon as we could on Sunday morning. Joseph rolled a stone over the entrance and we left. But early on Sunday morning, I went to Salome, that's John's mother, and Mary, James's mother, to the tomb where Joseph had buried him on Friday afternoon. Are you sure it was the right tomb? Could I forget such a thing? I'd only been there on Friday afternoon. I was hardly going to forget such a place. Okay, okay. Um, well, tell us what happened after you got to the tomb. Well, we got there just before sunrise, when it was just getting light. We were concerned that we wouldn't be able to roll the stone away. It was a huge lump of, lump of rock. It was about as high as one of us stands and about as thick as your forearm. We're hoping that the gardener or someone would be around to help us. Did you move the stone? Well, we didn't have to. When we got to the tomb, the stone had already been rolled back. <coughs> we couldn't understand why anyone would have done that, but we went inside anyway. The light was dim in there, but it didn't smell bad. And he had gone. And what did you think had happened? Oh, I didn't know what to think. My first thought was that someone had stolen the body away. So what did you do then? Did you tell anyone? Well, yeah, we had to tell Peter and the others. I was the youngest of the three of us. The others were mothers, so I ran back to the house. It's a really long way. I remember that I blurted out that they've taken him and we don't know where they put him. <laughs> did they believe you? Well, most of the men thought I was making it up or just hysterical. Peter and John were different, of course. The two of them rushed back to the garden with me. When I say with me, John and Peter were almost racing ahead of me. When I got back to the garden, the men were inside the tomb. And by this point, it was all too much for me, and I wept. Why would anyone steal him? Wasn't killing him enough? Then I heard a man's voice. They asked, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? I thought it was the gardener. Through my tears, I asked him, Mister, if you took him, please tell me where you put him so I can go and care for him. And then he spoke my name. Mary. And I knew it was his voice. I turned round to see Jesus standing in front of me, alive. Rabboni, I cried, and I went to embrace him. But he stopped me, saying he had to return to his father first. But he told me to tell the disciples everything. So I did. Hmm. With respect, Mary, here in Judea, Judea and Rome, the testimony of a woman is not held to be as valid as that of a man. Uh, how can we rely on what you're saying? Look, all I can tell you is the truth. What's the point of me lying to you? What do I have to gain? You can speak to Peter and he'll tell you that all I have told you is true. The truth is very important to us, whether it's told by a man or a woman. And do you really think that women are less truthful than men? Mm, well, we will speak to this, Peter. You've done very well. Thank you very much indeed. Please uh, take your seat. And... Um, I'll call Peter to the stand now, please. Peter, please state your full name. I am Simon Barjona, known as Kephas. You would say Peter in Greek. And what is your association with Jesus? Well, I had a fishing business on the shore of Galilee until Jesus chose me. I was one of his 12 closest companions when he was travelling through Galilee and Judea teaching, preaching, and healing. I was his friend and follower. He was my rabbi. He is my king, the Messiah. Well, please explain what happened the evening before. 
Well, Jesus arranged for the cedar, the Passover meal, a day early, on the Thursday before the Passover. He knew something was going to happen. We all came together to celebrate and eat together, but his mood was grave, as if he had the weight of, his, of the world on his shoulders. He said one of us would betray him. And he had words with Judas. Judas left early before the meal was over. That was about eight or so in the evening. Jesus broke bread and wine. We still do that to remember. But his mood did not lift. He said we would all fall away. To go on. He told me that I would deny him, deny that I knew him three times. I refused to believe it, but he knew me better than I knew myself. And what time did you leave the house? Before midnight, getting on for 10 p.m. I suppose. It was a 15-minute walk to the garden. It wasn't clear to me why we waited there. We could so easily have continued along the road back to Bethany, where we were staying. But Jesus had a purpose. He had to get this great task done. I understand that now. He was praying and very upset. And how long were you, you in this garden? I can't say exactly. It was late. We were tired and sleepy. It was about midnight. We heard the arrest party coming. We still could have got away, but Jesus stood up to face them as they came. At the front of the group was Judas. He picked out Jesus in the moonlight and greeted him with a kiss on both cheeks. And did uh, Jesus re resist arrest? What? No. I could see what was happening, and I'm ashamed to say that I lost my cool. I grabbed a sword and started to swing it around. I hit one of the high priest's men. Jesus stopped me. Then they led him away. And what did you do then? Well, all the others scattered. We didn't see them late until late the following day. John and I followed Jesus from a distance. We came to the courtyard of Caiaphas's palace. Caiaphas had been busy, that was clear. Everything was in place, the witnesses, just enough of the Sanhedrin to conduct a trial. And were you present at this trial? Well, we heard a lot of the proceedings from outside. The witnesses were liars, and they didn't even agree with each other. It wasn't going well for Caiaphas, until he asked Jesus that question. I adjure you in the name of the living God. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Jesus was forced to answer when he was asked like that. He answered very formally, It is as you say. That gave them the excuse they needed to convict him of blasphemy <coughs> and to accuse him before Pilate of sedition. And did you hear any more of the proceedings? Well, the people in the courtyard started asking me questions. Do you know him? You're from Galilee, I can tell by the way you talk, they said. Well, I was frightened, so I denied knowing him three times, just like he said I would. I then left. And what happened on Sunday morning? Well, we were still shocked on Sunday. The 11 of us were staying in Bethany. It's a couple of miles from Jerusalem over the hill. There wasn't much enthusiasm for the day ahead, I can tell you. We were mostly concerned about getting back to Galilee in one piece. We thought that Caiaphas and his powerful friends were after us, not to mention the Romans. We were frightened. The only man who ever gave us hope 
was lying in a stone tomb back in Jerusalem and we were on our own. Then Mary burst in. She was upset or, or excited. She had run all the way back from Jerusalem and she kept saying, he isn't here, they've taken him and we don't know where we've put, they've put him. Most of the others just said that she's hysterical. But I had to find out what she was talking about. So John and I went back to the tomb again to see what was going on. The stone had been rolled back and there was nothing there but the grave cloths that Joseph had wrapped him in on Friday afternoon. No body. And had this body been stolen? No, definitely not. I know that because I saw him soon after alive again. Uh, you claim that you've seen Jesus since then? Yes, sir. That evening we were back in Bethany together talking about what had happened. The doors were locked and there he was, alive, real, more real than I'd ever seen him. We saw him several times more after that. He even cooked us breakfast once and he forgave me for being so weak when he was alone and on trial. And uh, sometime later you were involved in an incident back in Jerusalem at the Pentecost festival. Tell us about that. Yes, well, we'd, we'd gone back to Jerusalem for the 50th day festival. Something amazing happened. It was like a fire that came down from heaven and set us all alight inside. Jesus had promised us this would happen. All our fear just fell away. From then on, I've been telling everyone about who he is and what he's done. Look, this man from Nazareth, this Jesus, wasn't just another woodworker from the countryside. God proved that with everything that he did. The miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him are common knowledge. This Jesus, following the deliberate and well thought out plan of God, was betrayed by men who took the law into their own hands and was handed over by the Jewish leaders to the Romans. In effect, they all pinned him to a cross and killed him. But God untied the death ropes and raised him up. Death was no match for him. David had said it all. I saw God before me for all time. Nothing can shake me. He's right by my side. I'm glad from the inside out. Ecstatic. I've pitched my tent in the land of hope. I know you'll never dump me in Hades. I'll never even smell the stench of death. You've got my feet on the life path with your face shining sun joy all around. Sir, let me be completely frank with you. Our ancestor David is dead and buried. His tomb is in plain sight today. But he was a prophet and he knew that God had solemnly sworn that a descendant of his would rule his kingdom. Seeing far ahead, he talked of the resurrection of the Messiah. No trip to Hades, no stench of death. <clears throat> this Jesus, God raised up. And every one of us there is a witness to it. There is no longer any room for doubt God made him master and messiah, this Jesus who was killed on a cross. Hmm. And now, what is going to happen to you, Peter? Well, I've led Jesus' people in the way for many years, but my time has come. They are going to crucify me. Jesus told me I would follow him all the way. All I have tried to do is to tell the truth about him, the truth it will set you free. Tomorrow, 
I shall be free with my Lord. Peter, thank you. Uh, please take your seat again. Uh, the next witness is Cleopas. Cleopas, take the stand, please. State your full name, Cleopas. I am Cleopas of Hamat. That's Emmaus. Emmaus, where's that? Oh, it's a village about seven miles outside Jerusalem. And what is your connection with this Jesus? Oh, I'm one of his followers right from the beginning <laughs> before he was crucified. Right. Uh, tell us what you saw on the uh, Passover weekend. It's been a terrible few days. After being welcomed into Jerusalem by a crowd who lay their cloaks and their palm leaves in the road, well, after that, Jesus was arrested and then he was put on trial and was finally crucified. That Friday was a day of, of deep despair. It even went dark in the middle of the day, like God was passing judgment on the world while our teacher was dying on that cross. It was Passover that day too. Our cup of salt, uh, our cup of salt tears were all too real that day. But you can imagine what the Sabbath was like the day after. And on the Sunday? Oh, on Sunday, while it was still early, one of the women burst into the house. She was very upset, saying that she'd been back to the tomb and that the body had gone. Simon and John rushed back to see what had happened. When they returned a little later, Simon had the grave clothes. And Mary was saying that she'd spoken to the master. To be honest, I didn't know what to make of it. Well, later that same day in the afternoon, I was walking back home from Jerusalem with my friend. I tell you, we had a lot to talk about. But we honestly, we just didn't know what to make of it all. Then suddenly we realized we were not alone. Another walker had caught up with us. He interrupted our conversation saying, what's this you're discussing so intently as you walk along? We just stood there long-faced. Then I said, are you the <coughs> only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's been happening these last few days? He said, what has happened? So we explained and said, the things that have happened to Jesus, the Nazarene, he was a man of God, a prophet, dynamic in work and in word, blessed by both God and all the people. Then our high priest and leaders betrayed him, got him sentenced to death, and crucified him. And we had our hopes up that he was the one, the one about to deliver Israel. And it's now the third day since it happened. But some of our women have completely confused us. Early this morning, they were at the tomb and couldn't find his body. They came back with the story that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of our friends went off to check and found it empty, just as the women said, but they didn't see Jesus. And who was this stranger? We didn't know. Then he 
said to us, so thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all the prophets said? Don't you see that these things had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory? I thought he was being rather direct and impolite. We'd only just met. But he persisted and he started at the beginning with the books of Moses. And he went all through the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to the Messiah. When, we conversed, when he conversed with us on the road, it felt like we were on fire as he opened the scriptures for us. We reached the edge of our village and he acted like he wanted to go on further. But we insisted that he should stay and have supper with us. It was nearly evening. The day was done and the night was drawing in. So he came in with us. And here's what happened. He sat down at the table with us. Taking the bread, he blessed and broke it and gave it to us. And suddenly, we recognized him. Our eyes were properly opened. It was Jesus, alive! But as soon as we knew him, he was gone. What was your reaction to what you saw? Were you afraid? Well, yes. Yes, I suppose we were. It didn't stop there, though. After we realized who it was, we didn't waste a minute. We were up on our way back to Jerusalem. There we found the eleven, and there our friends gathered together, talking. It's really happened. The master's been raised. Simon saw him. Then we went over everything that had happened on the road and how we recognized him when he broke the bread. Just as we were saying this, Jesus appeared and said, Peace be with you. Dear Pastor, are you sure it wasn't a ghost that you saw? Well, yeah. We thought we were seeing a ghost. We were scared half to death. But he said, don't be upset. Don't doubt what you see. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. And he showed us them. It's really me. Touch me. Look me over, head to toe. A ghost doesn't have muscle and bone like this. And as he said, like I said, he showed us his hands and his feet. We could still hardly believe what we were seeing. It was too much. It was too good to be true. Then he asked us, do you have any food here? They gave him a piece of leftover fish they'd cooked. He took it. He ate it right before our eyes. Sir, ghosts don't eat, sir. No, indeed. Thank you very much for your evidence. I now call James to the stand, please. Please state your name. I am Yaakov Bar Yusuf. Um, 
that's that's James in uh, in yeah. Uh, I'm Jesus' elder brother. Right. Now, please tell us your relationship with your brother before he was executed by the Romans. Okay. Uh, in your own time. Yeah. No. Uh, well, when I when I was when I was young. Um, well, I say young. When I was younger, I mean, I'm not as young as I was. I'm still pretty young. But anyway, when I was young, Jesus was a wonderful uh, big brother. He always took care of me. He always took care of my little brothers as well. Uh, life wasn't easy in Galilee with the, with the, with the Romans, uh, you know, around every corner. We, we had to look after each other. Jesus always... Please, we don't want your entire life history. Can, no, you, continue, you continue this case. We don't need popcorn. Okay, all right. Uh, well, uh, Jesus always seemed to be preparing himself for his, uh, his, his ministry. Uh, he spent long hours in prayer, studying the scripture. He had a wonderful way of reading the Torah. Like he could say it with authority. No one understood it. I, I didn't really understand it at the time. Or could explain its beauty like he did. Um, it, would, it would just come alive when he spoke from the Torah. Then, when Jesus was about 30, our cousin, uh, Zacharias' son, started to preach and to baptize people in the Jordan. And, and one day, Jesus went off to join him. Uh, we weren't very surprised by it. Can we deduce from this, James, that um, you were not one of your brother's followers from the beginning? No. No, I was not. Let me take you back <laughs> to a time in my past. Well, it wasn't very long ago. Uh, he came, ah, I remember, right? He came back for a wedding. I went, you know, like, you, know, you know, like weddings. He hadn't been with John, but he'd been off in the wilderness. Yeah, that was a good wedding. Lots of good wine. Sorry, oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, soon after that, Jesus started preaching himself. Uh, but he was claiming all sorts of wild things. You know, like wild things. Like he was the Messiah. We thought that he'd gone mad. Thousands of people followed him around the country while he cured people and taught. He was getting noticed. Like, you know, these guys over here, they think they're getting noticed. But, like, Jesus was getting, like, really noticed. You know, more, more noticed. Anyway, uh, even some along, Roman soldiers were said to be following him. We were, we were worried because of that. Uh, we even tried to bring him back home but before he, he got into trouble. Little did we know, of course, he did get into trouble, very big trouble, and they killed him. But now you're the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and what happened? Well, soon after the Romans crucified him, uh, uh, the, the disciples, they, they came, they were, they were back in uh, Capernaum. I, I don't know if you know Capernaum. It's a, it's a very exciting place. Uh, and, and they were very excited when they arrived, which made the place even more exciting. Uh, and they, they said that he wasn't dead. Uh, that is, uh, he had been dead, but he wasn't anymore. Uh, 
It all sounded like madness. I changed my mind pretty fast when I saw him too. You know, it, it takes you aback. I mean, you know, if you were there, you'd be taken aback too. Like, if you were taken aback, I was taken aback. Now, everyone would have been taken aback. I was definitely taken aback. You know, I can tell you, when your dead brother turns up and starts to speak to you, well, I, I, was, I, was, I, 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 I was taken aback. <laughs> I, I, won't, I won't tell you what we spoke about, of course. Uh, some conversations uh, must remain private amongst brothers. Uh, from <laughs> then on, though, uh, I, I knew that I'd been wrong about him all along. Uh, he truly is the Messiah. I wasn't, I, it wasn't him who was mad, it, it, but it was us who were wrong. And that is what brought me here to Jerusalem. I lead the community of the way here. Thank you, James. Please take a seat. Thank you. Thank you. You'll be very sad to hear that after that interview, James was stoned on the orders of Annas, the high priest. Well, our next witness is uh, Saul. Saul? Paul? Paul? Saul. Please state your name. I am Saul, a Benjaminite Jew of Tarsus, a Pharisee. I am a tent maker by trade, or should I say I was those things. Now I'm known as Paul, and Apostle of Jesus, the Messiah. <clears throat> um, you say you are a Pharisee. How is it then that you spent most of your life traveling and preaching about this Jesus? Uh, please listen carefully to what I have to say before you jump to conclusions about me. I'm sure you've heard the story of my earlier life when I lived in the Jewish way. In those days, I went all out in persecuting God's church. I was systematically destroying it. I was so enthusiastic about the traditions of my ancestors that I advanced head and shoulders above my peers in my career. And so you're a well-educated Jew. I'm a good Jew. Born in Tarsus in the province of uh, Cilicia, but educated in Jerusalem under the exacting eye of Rabbi Gamaliel, thoroughly instructed in our religious traditions, and I've always been passionately on God's side. I went after anyone connected with this, this way, went at them hammer and tongs, ready to kill for God. I rounded up women <laughs> and men, left and right, and had them thrown into prison. You can ask the chief priests uh, or anyone in the high council to verify this. They all knew me well. But you live an entirely different way of life now. Um, what brought about the change? I was sent off to our brothers in Damascus, armed with official documents authorizing me to hunt down the followers of Jesus, uh, to arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem for sentencing. As I arrived on the outskirts of Damascus, about noon, a blinding light blazed down out of the skies, and I fell to the ground. Dazed, I heard a voice. Saul. Saul, why are you out to get me? Who are you, master? I asked. He said, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, the one you are hunting down. My companions saw the light, but they didn't hear the conversation. Then I said, 
What do I do now, Master? He said, get your feet and enter Damascus. There you'll be told everything that's been set out for you to do. And so we entered Damascus, but nothing like the entrance I had planned. I was blind as a bat, and my companions had to lead me in by the hand. How long, how long was it before your sight returned to you? Soon after entering Damascus, I met a man, Ananias, a man with a sterling reputation in observing our laws. The Jewish community in Damascus is unanimous on that score. He came, he put his armor on my shoulder. Look up, he said. I looked, and I found myself looking into his eyes. I could see again. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has hand-picked you to be briefed on his plans of actions. You've actually seen the righteous innocent and heard him speak. You are to be a key. You are to be a key witness to everyone you meet of what you've seen and heard. So what are you waiting for? Get up and get yourself baptized, scrubbed clean of those sins, personally acquainted with God. Well, it happened, just as Ananias said, after I went back to Jerusalem and praying one day in the temple, lost in the presence of God, I saw him. I saw God's righteous innocent, Jesus the Messiah, and he spoke to me. Why does it matter? I have explained what I have to say quite clearly in my letter to the church in Corinth. And yes, I know you have a copy of that letter. But this is what I said. This is what I said. I said that the Messiah died for our sins exactly as the scripture tells it. That he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day. Again, exactly, exactly as scripture says. That he presented himself alive to Peter, then to his closest followers, and then later to more than 500 of his followers all at the same time. Most of them are still around, though some of them are dead, I know. Then he spent times with James and the rest of those he commissioned to represent him. And then, finally, presented himself alive to me. And it was fitting that I was the last. I don't deserve to be included in that inner circle. As you well know, having spent all of those years trying my best to stamp out God's church right out of existence. And yet here you are. Yes. Yes, because God was so gracious, so generous. Here, here I am. And I'm not about to let his grace go to waste. Haven't I worked hard trying to do more than any of the others? Even then, my work didn't amount to that much. It was God giving me that work to do. God giving me the energy to do it. So, whether you've heard it from me or from others, it's all the same. We spoke God's truth and you entrusted your lives. Now let me ask you something, something very profound, yet troubling. If you, if you became believers because you trusted the proclamation that God is alive, risen from the dead, how can you let people say there is no such thing as a resurrection? For if there is no resurrection, there is no living Christ. Face it, 
If there is no resurrection from Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you stake your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of, tell, guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we've passed on you, verifying that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrication, if there is no resurrection. If corpses can't be raised, then Christ can't be raised, because he was dead. And if Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering around in the dark, lost as ever. And it's even worse for those who have died, hoping in Christ's resurrection, because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised. The first in a long line, a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. And that, that is why it matters. It matters what you decide to believe. And I know what I believe. And even though I'm going to be executed for it, I know that my saviour is alive. And I will see him in my body, in my new body. Thank you, Saul. Um, sorry, sorry, Paul. Take your seat. Well, I now call upon Flavius Justice. Uh, Flavius Justice, our senator, to address us. Thank you. My court papers, if you will. Oh, thank you. Of course, sir. Thank you very much. You. Right. Yes, there are uh, a few extra witnesses, unfortunately, who could not be here today. Uh, one by the name of John, I believe. Uh, I have his statement here. Um, and I believe there are copies that have been circulated widely that you can... Uh, have a look at yourself. Um, so, you, the juror, must decide what became of the body. To help your decision, in addition to uh, the written evidence that, uh, uh, that I've just pointed out to you, um, I'm going to go over some of the key points of the evidence we've uh, seen presented today. So, is the sequence of events that's been set out, self-consistent. We should uh, consider some aspects of Jewish legal procedure that should have been followed in the trial of Jesus. And it's clear that the, the usual Jewish legal rules for conducting a trial, high priest, were broken. Jesus was arrested on a charge of threatening to destroy the temple, but the Jewish authorities couldn't make it stick. He was convicted of blasphemy, because when adjured in the name of the Most High, wordy bunch, aren't they, by Caiaphas, to answer whether or not he was the Messiah, he said that he was. Now, as a pious Jew, Jesus would have had no choice but to answer this question truthfully or else face the wrath of his God. His answer also gave, him, uh, gave them rather, the excuse to present the case to Pilate because it could be presented as though a rebellion were about to take place against the Roman authorities. The late trial 
and Pilate's willingness to be disturbed, prefect, and come forth from his own house indicated that Caiaphas and the Jewish authorities had prearranged that Jesus would be brought before the governor early in the morning on Friday. They had to find a pretext for conviction before that time. So afterwards, on the Sunday morning, the tomb was empty. That is a fact that nobody has so far disputed. No one has ever produced a body, or alternatively, a tomb with a body in it. When Jesus was arrested, his disciples scattered, apparently out of fear for their own safety. Only the women, Peter and John, were present anywhere near any of the events of the next 24 hours. Peter, as you have heard, denied even knowing Jesus when he was challenged. One of the most unusual aspects of the accounts of Jesus' followers is that the earliest witnesses are all held to be women. It would be expected that only male witnesses would be called to give credence, even if uh, Rome and more so in the eastern provinces. Um, However, the followers of the way, as, as they call their group, clearly put a very high value on truth. Therefore, one is uh, led to the unavoidable conclusion that they believe the accounts of these women. They believe them to be true and present their evidence as such. Some weeks later, at the Jewish Pentecost, the whole demeanour of those disciples had changed completely. They now stood boldly in front of the crowds in Jerusalem itself, preaching that Jesus was the Messiah. They have since spent the rest of their lives travelling and teaching people the gospel. Several have uh, already suffered violent martyrdoms, and it's clear that they care little for their bodily safety, holding the importance of witnessing to the truth of this teaching above all else. Saul who we've just heard, a Roman citizen and an enthusiastic persecutor of the early disciples, had an experience that reversed his beliefs completely. And he has subsequently become one of the most enthusiastic leaders of the way. James. You remember James, don't you? If James ever gets to writing a book... I hope he learns the value of concision. (sighs) Anyway, James, the brother of Jesus. He was like the rest of Jesus' family, unbelieving and in fact embarrassed by Jesus' ministry and the claims that he made when he was preaching in Galilee. However, the risen Jesus is reported to have appeared to James, as reported by Paul, and James became the leader of the way in Jerusalem. And he was stoned to death on the orders of the high priest, Annas, not Caiaphas. Although Caiaphas would probably have done it as well. So you must decide whether these men and women would knowingly endure such hardship, torture, and even death if they did not believe the events of that Sunday morning had not happened exactly as they have just described them. If they did not believe 
that the events of those Sunday morning were correct, would they have lived the lives that you have heard about now? Now, there are many theories that try to explain what happened after Jesus was crucified and the body went missing. And I'm going to take you through the main points of those now. Consider the evidence that has been presented here this evening and see if you can decide between them. So first of all, the swoon. This is that Jesus was not really dead when he was taken down from the cross and later he revived in the tomb in the cool of that rocky cave. But ask yourself, can we be sure he was dead? Did the Romans know how to kill people? What do you think, Centurion? Certainly are. It's the one thing we do well. That and roads. <laughs> and aqueducts, actually. Certainly good on the aqueducts. Could he have recovered enough, even if he had survived, to have moved the stone away and got out of the tomb unaided? Would he have been then in a physical condition that would convince anybody that he had risen from the dead in power? Or would he have looked like the walking dead? Could he have walked all the way to Emmaus? Could he have even walked down the street? Could he have appeared inside a locked room? So, secondly, it's been reported that Jewish or the Roman authorities stole the body. Well, why didn't they just produce the body when the rumours of his resurrection started to circulate around Jerusalem and save me the effort of having to come all the way here on my holiday. Oh, and you as well, I suppose. Uh, thirdly, the disciples stole the body, or that they're simply lying. But what happened to Peter? What happened to James? What about all the other disciples except John? Would they have died for something they knew to be untrue? And remember the great importance that these people place on the value of truth. Fourthly, the disciples were deluded. Does Paul sound like a man deluded? He reported that 500 people were alive that had seen Jesus risen and invited others to go and speak to them. People didn't believe then that anybody could come back from the dead any more than they do today. So, fifthly, Someone else made it all up later. Does it read as though someone made it up? When the first witnesses on the scene were people whose testimony wouldn't be taken to be reliable, the women. If they had really wanted to make a convincing case in the culture of the times, surely the story would have had men arriving at the tomb. It's also interesting that the four gospel accounts are consistent with one another and that taken together, the differences interlock to give a clear picture of what took place. So, our sixth conclusion is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Does this explanation fit the evidence and what happened later? Some questions you should address. What was the mood of the disciples before Jesus was arrested? What about when he was on trial and was executed? How did this change later, after the 50-day festival? In Judea and Rome, a woman's evidence was held to be less valid than a man's. Nevertheless, the accounts of the resurrection all have women discovering the empty tomb. Why do you think 
that what happened was recorded like this, rather than having Peter or John discover the empty tomb. Is there any doubt that the women found the tomb and found it empty? Why might someone have hidden the body somewhere else? Why do you think no one produced Jesus' body in the weeks or even years after his death with marks of crucifixion upon it? Why was Saul so enthusiastically trying to stamp out the way and what changed his mind? What eventually happened to James and Saul or Paul and Peter? How many people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, according to Paul? Is it possible that this many people could have experienced the same hallucination? What bearing does the importance of truth have to the followers of Jesus? And what influence would it have on their testimony? And why didn't they just go back to their earlier lives? That would have been much, much safer and in many cases more profitable. So, what do you think? That's the conclusion of our inquiry. Now, uh, you're all warmly invited to share in some sort of boiled barbarian beverage through in the antechamber uh, that way. I will, of course, not be indulging in such things and will be searching for a nice glass of Greek wine. Um, but I invite you to think through the evidence that's been presented this evening. Discuss it among yourselves. What is the most logical explanation? Lector, thank you. Will the congregation please stand for the senator?